This morning is January 25th, 2004. If you're taking notes, the title of this message will be The Isaac and Ishmael Principles. One of the things that's not been good to mankind is a knowledge of good and evil. You know, when Adam and Eve were unaware of what sin was, when they didn't have the propensity to choose sin because they had not eaten from a tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they walked with God, their every need was met, there was nothing that was harsh in their life, they didn't even know what death was. But from the moment that they desired to obtain for themselves the knowledge of good and evil, man has consistently chosen what is wrong. Things that seem right to us end in death. I give you, I give you the hardest one that I can think of. In Nehemiah's time, I taught you all about building the wall. Do you remember towards the end of that message and towards the end of the book of Nehemiah what something they had to do was? They had some unholy marriages. Do you remember that? They had to put their wives to death. Now, is there anybody in here that would say, yeah, in my natural self, that seems like the right thing to do? This woman's born me children. She loves me and I love her. But because God said several hundred years before I couldn't intermarry with these people, yeah, obviously the right thing to do is to kill her. And yet that was the will of God in that situation. Now, what I'm getting at is there can be a vast difference between what you feel like is good and right and what God's will is. Jesus is not concerned with your reputation at all. He proved that by being so obedient to the Father that he wasn't concerned about his reputation. Jesus never did anything to protect his reputation. In fact, when he healed people, many times he said, don't tell anybody. Now, if he was concerned with his reputation, he would have told everybody. His worldly brothers rebuked him one time, said, nobody who wants to be a public figure goes around doing these things quietly. You should go to Jerusalem. Quit hiding out here. Jesus was not concerned with what other people thought was right or wrong. He was concerned with the will of God. The example that I had talked about during our worship earlier is somebody is concerned with what they think is right or wrong rather than the will of God. We've all been there. I've done things that I thought were right only later to find out it was Ishmael. Man, it's something I should have thrown out. But you need to have sober judgment about your life, all of us. And as we get into this, I want you to deeply think about your life and say, hey, did I do that? Because I had some pride and I was worried people might not think I was a man of God if I didn't do it. Did I do that because I was concerned that somebody might be hurt? See, those kind of things can be godly. You want people to think you're a man of God. That's how you witness. You want people not to be hurt. But they can be ungodly if they prevent you from doing what God's told you to do. Your job's not to worry about consequences ever. Your job's to be obedient. You know, what if Jesus had said, Lord... I can't do what you told me to do. They'll kill me if I do that. I can't do that. That'll cause most... I can't say eat my flesh and drink my blood. That'll cause everybody to fall away from me. See, godly decisions are not made like worldly decisions. Do you you understand what I'm saying? Do you know how many pastors there are that have received from God the baptism in the Holy Ghost but cannot announce it to their congregation because they're scared of that? It couldn't be God for us to lose this building. It couldn't be God for us to have 700 of our 1,000 members to run off. That couldn't be God. Think of the havoc and turmoil it would cause in their lives. When in reality, it is God. 
they just don't have the strength to do it and they've justified in their flesh by their knowledge of what is good and evil the right thing to do. There was a generation that was more noble than mine that always had the idea you should live by your word. All, you should mean what you say and say what you mean. I like that. Our president displays that. It is a noble ideal. But our noble ideals should never take precedence over what the Word says. And if you've given somebody your Word and you find out later it is not what God wants you to do, it's not what God's Word says for you to do, your Word means nothing compared to His. This is what the Scripture means when it says, let God be true and every other man a liar. See, but many times we, we would make God a liar rather than us a liar. You understand? Okay, that, that was laying out. Turn to James four seventeen. The hardest choice I had to make early on in my Christian walk was a guy said, Hey, I will pay you. I'll pay you to preach. I respected the man. I loved him. Looked up to him. He was a strong influence in mine and Jennifer's lives. Wanted to give me some of his sermons. Wanted to book me as a youth evangelist and educate me. Now, I'll be honest, most just jump right on that. And I almost did. I wanted it so bad I could taste it. I drove to different colleges to see, you know, what, what that life might be like. That was a good idea based on that man's knowledge of what good and evil was. But it was not God's will for me. Okay, all of that should, should cast some light on James 4. I can look now and see, golly, in the natural, I could have been much more successful doing that. I would probably have a big church somewhere. I might have nice cars and might have prestige in the community. And I would be just like every other sellout that has ever done that. I'd rather be preaching in a converted garage to a handful and know that I was in God's will gaining God's favor. But we are lying to ourselves if we don't say, that at times this is a real battle. It tears within us. Because you know what? Now I can see clearly in that time period, to me, it looked like the will of God. It's the very thing I was praying for. Few Christians are ever able to say, no, I'm not ready for that yet. I, it was God sent in my life that there were some other people around me and they didn't even come out and say, don't do it. I could just tell I knew that they were godly, and I could just tell by the looks on their faces. They may not, may not think this is a good thing, and it caused some hesitation. That hesitation gave time for God to speak to me. But it takes a, a mature, maturing Christian, somebody who's interested in obtaining maturity, just to be able to hear when you want something that it might not be God's will. Worst thing I ever did in my life was pray, Jesus, if that truck is not one you don't want me to buy? I mean, if I'm not supposed to buy that truck that I love, that I long for, that is got everything in it I could ever want and is a fantastic deal, if I'm not supposed to buy that one, don't let it be here in two weeks. I waited two weeks. That was my mighty fleece, right? Cars can sit on car lots for... I mean, have you ever been on a car lot and seen a 2004 when it was 2006? I mean, obviously not those examples, but you know what I mean. Sometimes cars don't sell for a while. Well, my fleece that I threw out there in so much faith, right, was really just a way to justify what I wanted. 
I added to that by giving away the vehicle that I had. That was almost like bribing God, you know. See, God, I'll give away the one I have if I get the one that I want. I'll bless somebody. Now, the whole time, I had convinced myself this was God. You know when I knew it wasn't? About five months later when I had to sell it to pay my house note. God's a powerful teacher. I've learned one other thing about Christians. Not only is it hard for us to hear that something that we want is not God, we rarely ever go back and admit we were wrong. You know, we just move right on. You know, we, we, we never said, no, I was wrong. God corrected me and praise God for it. We just, oh, no, it was God somehow. You know what, how I told people that one was God? Because when I sold it, I made some profit on it, and it paid my house notes for a few months. So it must have been God. It was God's investment program all along. That seemed good for a while. But I can tell you this side of that, six, seven years later, I can look back and go, that wasn't any more God than if I, you know, painted myself purple and, and stood on my head up here in front of you. But it seemed like it at the time. There's a difference between the works of your hands that you think are good and God's works that are spiritual. And I tell you what, the spiritual ones may not always seem good to you. Remember, within you is working the knowledge of good and evil passed down from the federal head of the human race, Adam, that he ate of that tree. And in him, we say it was sin that caused death. Really, it's not. It was the first cause of death was not sin. It was the knowledge of what good and evil was, which produced in him sin. Realize your ability to reason what is good and bad is not what the kingdom is based on. Okay, y'all in James 4? I don't know why we preachers do that. I've got everything right here, logically laid out, ready to preach, and I give you a 30-minute prelude to the sermon. <laughs> I'm sorry. I guess I'm wanting to make sure that you understand it as we get into it so it's not just a bunch of scriptures lost on you. All right, in James 4, verse 17. I thought, yeah. Anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. Anyone then that knows the good he ought to do and does not do it, sins. Is that the first way you would usually describe sin? No, you would describe sin usually as that thing that is bad that you did and shouldn't have done. Well, know this. There are at least two kinds of sin, whether you call them omission and commission or however you, way you want to phrase it. Sometimes sin is doing something you shouldn't do. Other times sin is doing, not doing that thing that you know you should do. I think it's interesting that you find the one that is less prevalent in our thoughts stated plainly in Scripture. Isn't that interesting? Christians think that we are Christians because we don't smoke. We don't drink. And by the way, that's not true of everybody in here. You know? That we don't say bad things. We don't dress a certain way. Christians are Christians not because of what they don't do, but because of what they do. How did he define sin? He didn't define sin as something that you don't do. He defined sin as the good that you knew you should do and didn't do. Right? Now, before we get all caught up in the do's and don't do's like Paul did, the good that I want, you know, that's the most confusing sentence in the world to me. I know exactly what he means, but it's like that Peter Piper picked a patch of 
pickles or peppers or whatever. It's a tongue twister just to say. Keep in your mind as we move forward, there's two kinds of sin. The sin that things you did that you shouldn't have done. And then the sin that are things you know you should do and just don't. Why do we, and I can say this confidently about everybody in here, why do we who love Jesus sin? You know, it's not because we don't love Him. We do. Everybody in here, you've based your life upon Jesus. Your decisions to move, your decisions to work, your decisions to marry, your decisions to wait on marriage, your decisions on when to have children. Your lives have been based on Jesus. So why do we sin? Look at Romans 6 real quick. The Scripture is very clear. We've got two natures working within us. This is no, no news flash. I mean, I don't... Don't expect that I'm standing up here telling you something that you couldn't have known. There are two natures at work within you, and there's an attitude that we're supposed to have. In Romans 6, verse 11, In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin. You don't have to count or act as if you were dead to sin if you really were dead to sin. There is still the power of sin or flesh, or later we're going to call it Ishmael, working in you. And truth is, Ishmael is not the power of sin. It's just one type of sin, the type we're going to follow through with today as far as teaching. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. If he says, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that lets you know you have the power, God has given you the power, to do something about it. Too often we have the attitude. Too often we take the stance, well, I just sinned. I couldn't do anything about it. It just happened. No, God tells you do not let it rule over you. He told Cain that too. Sin is at your door. It desires to have you. But you must master it. See, there's, it's an old Bob Dylan song. You're going to have to serve somebody. And that is true. Either you master sin or sin masters you. And there are going to be days in your life you feel like you're on both sides of that coin. Me too. That, that's, that's just how that works. But each day you need to wake up and decide, sin will not reign in my mortal body today. Although my flesh is drawn to it, I will not let it rule over me. In fact, I'm dead to it. You go pr- try to persuade a dead man to do anything. If somebody's dead laying in here and I want him to sing, or I want him to listen, or I want him to breathe, no matter how much I whine, no matter how much I use emotional manipulation, no matter how sharp my sales abilities are, I can't get the dead man to do anything. We should have a dead man's attitude towards sin. Though it pulls at you, it grabs your ears, your eyes, it turns your head, it puts billboards up in front of you trying to grab your attention. You should be dead to it because the Bible tells you count yourselves dead to sin. You've never lived in a time where something competed. In fact, no man has ever lived in a time where sin competed for your attention in the way that it does today. You know, we are blessed with technology. This morning, Ron Cannoli was here worshiping with us figuratively. Now, you realize a few hundred years ago, he would have had to get on a horse and ride here or a boat and sail here or would have had to walk 
Now, I know he wasn't really here, but he was here worshiping, wasn't he? He was on a CD that was being played here. It was no different. What a beautiful technological advancement. Now this guy who's anointed for worship can be in many places at once blessing many people. And at the same time, every time you turn on a television, a radio, get in your car, or driving anywhere, looking around, sin is right there, able to be multiplied in its presence too. You no longer have to go to a certain area of town to see certain kinds of sin. It can sneak into the privacy of your own home. It might even be welcomed in. It just depends on whether you've counted yourself dead to sin or not. In light of such opposition, it's important that we Christians take our stand. But remember, our topic here is not so much the sin that you know you're not supposed to do. You know, don't do that or to be sin. It's more the good that you know you should do and don't do. We're talking about those kind of sins. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. You're supposed to count yourself dead to sin, but on the contrary, alive to God. In other words, sin ought to have a hard time getting your attention because you're like a dead man yet. But God should be able to get your attention like that because you're alive to Him. The parts of your body to Him as instruments of righteousness. Verse 14. For sin shall not be your master. Friends, that's not a question. He's talking to Christians and there is no question mark on that. He's not saying, should sin be your master? He said, sin shall not be your master. That's because anyone who is a Christian must take this attitude. Sin will not be my master. Well, what kind of sin? I don't, I don't do all of those bad things. No, I'm talking about you not doing what God tells you to do. I'm not talking about you not doing anything. We're using James's definition. The good you know you ought to do and do not do. Sin shall not be your master. See, sometimes people sin because they're impetuous. They run right out and do something. I usually would fall into that category. Other people sin because they procrastinate. They do not do what God said do. See, and, and not all sin falls into those categories, but the idea is there's a lot of ways for your flesh to trick you into sinning. And we're going to examine some of those today. We wanted to know why those of us who love Jesus still sin. Well, we're supposed to count ourselves dead to sin, number one. That's the first thing we, we know. Well, why don't we? What happens to us that somewhere we get turned from counting ourselves dead to sin to being alive to it? Look at 2 Samuel 3, verse 13. What has happened is David has overthrown... No, David did not. That's a good... (laughs) Bad way to say that. David waited for God to overthrow Saul's kingdom. He did not take matters into his own hand. He waited for God to depose Saul. He considered God or Saul God's anointed, so he didn't harm him at all. He waited for God to bring about what God said he would do. He realized that the purpose on his life, the purpose on David's life would be fulfilled by God because the purpose itself belonged to God. David didn't decide he'd become king one day. God told him he would become king. So was it David's job to pull it off, to accomplish it? No. It was only David's job to be obedient. Well, here we are. David has become king. 
and he's talking with some members of the fallen regime. And this, what, what we're getting at here is why Christians don't count themselves dead to sin sometimes. Verse 13, Good, said David, I will make an agreement with you, but I demand one thing of you. Do not come into my presence unless you bring Michael, daughter of Saul, when you come to see me. Then David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, son of Saul, demanding, Give me my wife, Michael, whom I betrothed to myself for the price of a hundred Philistine foreskins. What happened was when David was still in Saul's army, Saul said, If somebody will go out and get a certain number of Philistine foreskins for me, I will give them my daughter as a wedding present. David went out and got above and beyond what Saul asked for. He killed other men that he might shed blood for the purpose of gaining this bride. Much like Jesus went to battle for us, others' blood was spilled. Jesus' blood was spilled as a price for us, his bride. But the wicked king of the land did not give David his wife. He gave her to another man. And watch this, verse 15. So Ishbosheth came, gave orders and had her taken away from her husband Paltiel, son of Laish. Her husband, however, went with her, weeping behind her all the way to Baharum. Then Abner said to him, Go back home. So he went back home. Could you feel bad for Paltiel? For many years now, Paltiel has been living with this woman that somebody gave him as a wife. He loved her. He went crying behind her. If you were David, might you have relented? Oh, man, well, he loves her. Seems like the right thing to do. There's a problem with that. It was God's will that he take her as his wife, and he paid a blood price for her. See, you all have had a blood price paid for you, and you have spent time betrothed or married to an illegitimate husband, somebody like Paul Teal. Each of us, although we were paid for by Jesus, at times have betrothed ourselves or married ourselves or covenanted with the power of this world. Now we hear the call, repent, turn from what you're doing, come back. And on your way back to Jesus, Paul Teal is running behind you saying, hey, I still love you. I still want you. Don't leave me. How could you leave me? We had such good times. We were intimate together. They may even have had children together. And the commander in the army had to turn and tell Paul Teal, go home. If there's a, a, a powerful message that you should get as we get into the text this morning, it is go home. Throw out that bond servant and, and her son. Working within us are two spouses. We're going to look at this several different ways in the Scripture today. Our rightful spouse who has legitimate authority in our lives and the one without legitimate authority in our lives. See, we are dead to one and alive to the other. But the one who's legitimate doesn't come to us and say, David, Jennifer, you should do this. And you should do it because I'm your legitimate husband. And you should do it and justify himself in those ways. He's the ultimate 
So he leaves it up to you to decide. He doesn't try to convince you. However, the illegitimate husband will weep and cry and use every emotional heartstring he could to pull you from the will of God. See, the enemy's tactics are much different than God's tactics. God pretty much assumes the role of I am the everything. I am. I don't need anybody else. I exist all by myself and you should be drawn to me because you are the work of my hands. That's pretty much how he stands. He has reached out to humanity and done everything for humanity that we couldn't do for ourselves. And now it's our job to reach back to him. However, the devil is not that way. He will work like a salesman on you day and night, begging you, pleading you, trying to intimidate you. He'll manipulate you any way he can to get you from going to your rightful husband. Let's look at some of those forms of manipulation. There's something in us that has an attraction to illegitimate authority. Have you noticed on those soap operas the women don't pine for their husbands? No, y'all don't watch soap operas, right? Have you noticed that in the world they portray women who are happily married that walk into a coffee shop or something and see some guy all of a sudden is innately drawn? And it's a given that men are that way. Always drawn to what is illegitimate, what they should not have. That nature is within us. Hollywood knows it, and that's why they are, are working towards it. That's why they're, they're pulling at that. Within us, there is a nature that strives for illegitimate authority. We like it because it's easy. It tells us what to do and when to do it and requires no work. On that note, let's go to Genesis 9. To better understand the way that we should live, we're going to read Genesis 9 and we're going to examine the role of our various natures. I'm telling you right up front this morning, I've taught different things about Genesis 9 than I'm going to teach you this morning. When we get to Galatians, I've taught you different things about the chapter of Galatians I'm going to read you than I'm teaching you this morning. One's not right and the other wrong. One is teaching from a national perspective. This is what these things mean to the nations. And another is teaching what these things mean to you in your practical individual life. A theme that I've picked up as part of Life Changing Ministries. I understand the big picture very well. My revelation is not inadequate in the slightest in regards to other men of God that are out there about the big picture. But the big picture means very little to you if you don't know how to apply it to your life. It's said that a man can lose vision of the whole forest for staring at the trees. Well, you know what else a man can do? He can look at the whole forest and gain the scope of it and run into the trees that are right in front of his face and hurt himself. You know, both are true. It's not okay to only have a globalist perspective. You must also understand how these things affect your life. So I will always try to teach both. Sometimes I'll do a good job, sometimes I may not. But in Genesis 9, verse 24, You know that I have taught you on many occasions about Noah's children. Ham, Shem, and Japheth represent the table of nations. Everybody on earth descended from those three guys. The prophecy that is given here speaks about nations. 
speaks about what would happen with these groupings of nations. And it's true. And the chart on the wall behind shows much of it. This morning, though, we're going to look at this as it relates to you as an individual today. See, it's safe to talk about nations. It makes you very learned. makes you a Bible scholar, even. But you could be very, very weak in life application. And I don't want that. It would do me no good for you to be able to teach college professors about the table of nations in the Bible and not be able to live this out. So I want you to be able to live it out. When Noah awoke from his wine and found out what his youngest son had done to him, he said, and you all know the story of Noah, so I'm not going back through that, Cursed be Canaan, the lowest of slaves will he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. May Canaan be the slave of Shem. May God extend the territory of Japheth. May Japheth live in the tents of Shem, and may Canaan be his slave. So well, that's great. Eric, he's talking about three sons. And you've already taught us those sons produce nations. So he's talking about nations subduing other nations. And we know that Shem was the Semitic people who became Israel. So blessed be the God of Israel. Yeah, all of that is true. And that is exactly what this is talking about. Let me tell you what else I see in it that you need to know for today. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, is your spirit within you. It's your spirit who has been enlightened, redeemed, born again, saved, made whole, however you want to phrase that, by the Spirit of God. Blessed be the Spirit of God in you. May Canaan, your flesh, be the slave of Shem, your spirit. Canaan represents the slave, the flesh. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. That's your spirit. May Canaan, your flesh, be the slave of Shem, your spirit. May God extend the territory of Japheth. May Japheth live in the tents of Shem. Japheth is your soul, your mind, your will, your emotions. And your mind and your will and your emotions need to do the same thing that Shem or your spirit has done. Your mind, your will, and your emotions need to unite with your spirit that has been born again by the Spirit of God. And then thirdly, may Canaan be his slave. You are a three-part being, just like God is a three-part being. You have a spirit. That is you. That's the eternal part of you that never goes away. That is literally who you are. You have a mind, a will, and emotions. That is your soul. That's your thought processes. That's the part of you that can be torn between your spirit and your flesh and desire both things. And then you have your flesh. That's the tent that you live in. Now both Japheth and Shem, your spirit and your soul, live inside of Canaan today. Your flesh. They live in that tent. But what you must do is acknowledge that they're all there and command, like David said, praise the Lord, O my soul. You have to command your soul to do what your spirit knows is right because God's revealed it. And you have to make your flesh be a slave to the other two. Now let me tell you what happens in reality. In reality, you know in your spirit that something's right, the good that you ought to do. But your soul begins to listen to the flesh. Ooh, 
might lose money, might lose favor, might lose my job, my wife might leave me, my kids might think I'm an idiot. Whatever it is that the flesh is telling you, the soul begins to listen to. Then your soul and your flesh crave illegitimate authority and they take the throne of your life over your spirit. Your soul and your flesh should always be in submission to your spirit. Always. When you sin is when your soul and your flesh have forced your spirit into submission. Happens all the time. Friends, it happens every time you've ever sinned. Because within you, God has placed a deposit. His Holy Spirit. It's for the purpose of guaranteeing that you'll be resurrected. That one day you'll be liberated from your bondage to decay. So that means within your spirit is the will of God. Within your spirit is the capacity for revelation. Within your spirit is the right thing that you should know to do. When you're unable to do it, it's because your flesh and your soul have ganged up on your spirit and thrown him off the throne of your life. Now, I'm talking about the born-again man. It goes without saying that a lost man's spirit's corrupted. Those three can get together and have an orgy on the throne of his life. It doesn't bother him. But we are not in that group. Romans 8 says, yeah, you've got the sinful nature working in you, but you have no obligation to live according to it. Your obligation is to the Spirit. You could say it another way. Your subjugation is to the Spirit. The proper flow of authority in your life should be Spirit, Soul, Flesh. The flesh is the slave of the other two. And the soul is supposed to live in the tent of the Spirit. You know what that is? That's when we say walking in the Spirit. Say, oh, well, so-and-so was really in the Spirit. You know what that means? That means that they pulled their soul into the spiritual realm that they're supposed to live in all the time. You all see that pattern there? Okay. Well, we're going to move then. Go to Galatians 4. This is really the, the heart of what we were getting to today. This is our text, if you will. Y'all are still with me, huh? Remember that our title this morning was the Ishmael and Isaac Principles. In light of the things that we've been speaking about, we'll see what else we can see in these stories now. See, when I have taught on Galatians 4 before, 4 before, previously, I have taught you about the Jewish bondage to the Levitical law about the freedom that comes in Christ, how we've joined into that freedom. I've taught you about those things which, again, are a nationalist perspective because the Bible deals with nations of men. But today we're going to examine how this Scripture that Paul is using to apply to nations to apply to you within your daily walk. Verse 21. Tell me, you who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. You remember I said that each of us have two spouses working within us? Paul Teal and our legitimate husband? Well, Paul uses the same kind of example, but uses wives. It works both ways. Abraham, the man of God who walked in faith, had two kinds of wives because he had two sons. One wife was a slave. It's like the flesh. Incidentally, she's also a descendant of Ham or Canaan. Isn't that interesting? 
The other, descendant of Shem, the rightful wife. Tell me, you who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. His son by the slave woman was born in the ordinary way. Friends, the things that seem ordinary to you, the things that come naturally to you, the things that are easy for you because it's what you would naturally do, the ordinary way, are not always the right way. You know that first thought that comes to you that says, yeah, I need to do this because it's the right thing to do. That may not have come from the Spirit of God. That may be the flesh's interpretation of what the right thing to do is. This is how we mistake good ideas for God ideas. That's how people are fooled into serving a Mormon God. Because those things seem good. They're appealing to the flesh. But it is not what the Spirit says to do. i give you uh, an example without naming it. There was a huge movement in this country, a huge movement. All churches were pressured to go and be a part of it. And it relied on seven basic principles. The problem with the seven basic principles is anybody who didn't love Jesus could obey all seven of those principles. Any Mormon, any Jehovah's Witness, any Catholic that had not been born again, any God-hater that happened to be a moral man, could have done those things. Was it a a good thing? Yeah, it bore fruit in many people's lives. And often Ishmael does bear some fruit. But Ishmael will never bear the fruit that God intended. See, that thing swept through this country. A lot of people got saved. But it sure was not God's will for my life. It was not God's will for many churches, even though it looked like a good thing. In my life, that was something that was born out of good idea, not God. And when I went and attended one, I knew. I realize that that's kind of vague, what I'm saying here, and it's because I'm trying to be tactful. When something touches a lot of people's lives, you don't want to rain on it, you know? I I don't want to defeat somebody's salvation experience and call it Ishmael, because to them it wasn't. I'm just talking about to me. You remember, you remember Heaven's Gates, Hell's, Hell's Flames? Man, that thing was powerful at times. It was equally unpowerful in other churches. <coughs> same place, same people. Wonder why that was. Some, it was anointed because it was ordained of God, and others, it was just a good idea. What well, worked for them? Let's try it. His son, by the slave woman, was born in the ordinary way. But by the free woman, but his son by the free woman was born as the result of the promise. When something comes to you through your ordinary thought processes, it should be subject. It doesn't mean it's wrong. It means it should be subject to something coming to you by the supernatural way. You understand what I'm saying? You've got two kinds of wives, two kinds of children produced by those wives working within you. One comes to you by the ordinary kind of method. Not necessarily wrong, it's just ordinary and therefore fundamentally subject to flaw. The other way things come to you, thoughts, revelations, ideas, 
is in a supernatural way. Therefore, fundamentally above the flesh, above the ordinary way, supernatural, above the natural. It's not subject to what your flesh or soul thinks about it. When you get a thought in the ordinary way, it should run through your spirit, then through your soul and be carried out by the flesh. When you get a supernatural thought or idea, it doesn't matter what the flesh and the soul think about it. Because they're subject to the Spirit, which is where the idea was born. God has promised you certain things in your lives. It does not matter what the soul thinks about it. It sure does not matter what the flesh thinks about it. Your job is to work until you see them fulfilled. Let's look at how those things compete some. I'm going to finish reading this and then we're going to go to Genesis. These things may be taken figuratively. Ah, thank you, Paul. I appreciate it. Paul gave me the license to take these things figuratively. So for the brothers or sisters that may listen to this CD and go, oh, I think he's reaching there. Well, Paul took them figuratively. Why can't I? I tell you what else, this scripture that he quotes here in a minute about the barren woman, that scripture was never, never applied to the women he applies it to. You go look it up sometime. He took some creative license there. These things may be taken figuratively. For the women represent two covenants. One covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. Now Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem that is above is free and she is our mother. For it is written, Be glad, O barren woman, who bears no children, break forth and cry aloud, you who have no labor pains, because more are the children of the desolate woman than that of her who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. At that time, the son born in the ordinary way persecuted the son born by the power of the Spirit. It is now, it is the same now. But what does the Scripture say? Get rid of the slave woman and her son, For the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with the free woman's son. Therefore, brothers, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. Friends, working within you, you have flesh. That's Hagar. That's Canaan. That's Ham. The things that are born of the flesh may be good, but they will never share in the inheritance of God. Never. Doesn't matter. You can, and think about this. Have you known or heard of people that were lost as could be and did many good things? Usually buildings are named after them all over town. Did they help people? Yes. Did they make a positive impact in people's life? Yes. Did they do some good for God? Yes. Was it born of God? No. Paul is very clear about this. You can only build with a couple kinds of substance. Some are precious, born of the Spirit, and some are natural. The natural ones are burned up. They do not count in God's kingdom. If I hear from God and give you a glass of cold water, that will be rewarded many times over because I heard from God and did it. If a Buddhist gives you a glass of cold water, that will not survive into any eternity. I don't care if people take issue with me about that. The 
Things that you do only survive if they're born of the Spirit, no matter how good they are. I could have done a lot of good in the Baptist church working for that guy. I could have touched a lot of people's lives. It would not have survived into eternity because it is not what God told me to do. And I tell you what, he didn't tell me in that time period either. There was no Charlton Heston voice parting the clouds saying, don't do this. All there was was an uneasiness in my spirit that I could not even explain in my soul. I could have done some good if I had finished at Southeastern. Could have been a social studies teacher and a coach. That's what I wanted to be. I could have done some good there. That was not the Isaac principle working in my life. That was not the promise of God. God did not want that. It's like the man who Brad told us about who stood before the throne of God and God spoke and said, Give an account for your life. And the man said, I went to Bible college. I became a politician. I helped all these people. I did this. And he said, I didn't tell you to do any of that. Give an account for your life. There are Ishmael things that we do in our lives that because Paul Thiel is chasing behind us, whining, crying, doing all of those things, we want to do some good. And so we try. We reach out and we try to do good. But it was not born of God and it will not last. doesn't mean you're not saved. doesn't mean you don't love Jesus. It means you were tricked. Nobody knows what it's like to be tricked. I do. I've done it. I have been so tricked. The most complicated thing that can ever happen is when God tells you to do something, you're doing it, and at some point... He tells you to do something else. It seems right. It seems good to keep doing what God originally told you to do, right? Not realizing the season's over and He's moving you. I did this at King's Harvest. I was there. I was unable to hear. I was to do anything else because, to me, that would like betray everything that God had ever told me. My knowledge of good and evil working here. My desire. The works of my hands. Was it spawned by the Spirit? Absolutely. Would it be the Spirit for me to stay there? Absolutely not. See, the kingdom does not boil down to what you're able to reason and what you're not able to reason. For that reason, you'll be ridiculed by brothers and sisters for sure. There may be a time in your lives God tells you to do something and I stand back and look at you and think you are insane. Only you know whether God told you to do it or not. Now, as I get better at being a pastor and you get better at being sheep, we'll have more mercy for each other in those situations. All I ever ask, and I've been preaching this very hard, it is nobody's responsibility to hear from God but yours. Everything else is simply encouragement. All I ever ask is that if I take a strong stand about something, that you consider it deeply. That's, that's, that's my role. I did it yesterday standing right there in this room. Stood up, pointed my finger, followed by a hug, and said, Brother, if you do that, it will be sin. And I'm not God to the guy. I can't make him do anything. I'm painfully aware of that. It's a good thing I'm not in control of your lives. I can't even control mine. But when somebody who God has placed in authority over you does that, that does not mean at all that the higher authority might not be telling you to do it. It means that you should stop, you should wait, 
you should pray and make certain that you've heard. Because God will usually get all the chains of authority on the same page. Sometimes it takes weeks, months. But it does happen. I'm seeing it happen right now in the situation I've been praying about for a long time. I'm watching God is changing everybody who's in a position of authority's mind so that there's agreement in everybody. God's timetable's not ours. We get in real trouble when we get outside of His timetable sometimes. I got another 20, 25 minutes. So go ahead and go to Genesis 12. Are y'all with me? Are y'all getting anything out of this? Y'all some quiet white people. (laughs) Any of those old, dry, religious, dead churches where the pastor's standing up there and he's preaching, everybody just staring at him, gnats and flies are circulating around their mouths. A lot of times the tradition that I come from, they also were very racially motivated, tend to be staunch old white guys, you know, that wore cowboy boots and had gun racks in their trucks. If they ever got the opportunity to experience the life that is in churches full of people that they hate because of their skin color, they might find a reason to admire. I had the most fun in my life preaching to audiences that were entirely a different color than me. There's something to be said for diversity in the body. Genesis 12, verse 2. Y'all are pretty familiar with this. God speaks to Abraham. says, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. Who will make Abraham into a nation? Who is the I there? God. All right? Hang a right until you get to chapter 16. The title of chapter 16 says Hagar and Ishmael. We're talking about the flesh here and the works of the flesh. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. But she had an Egyptian maidservant named Hagar. So she said to Abram, The Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my maidservant. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Were her intentions good? Yes. Were they related to the promise of God? Yes. Could you have been tricked? Yes. But was this God? Absolutely not. God did say Abraham would have a child. God did not say that it would be through Hagar. In fact, He said it would be through Sarai. But she wanted to build a family. She said, I, perhaps I can do this. Now, there's something to be said for being motivated about doing the will of God, rolling up your sleeves and working with all you have to accomplish it. But what is never okay is to take matters into your own hands and begin to deviate from the plan of God so that you can accomplish something. What do you think was the cause here? It had been almost ten years. They were getting impatient. I'm proud of them for waiting ten years. I'll be honest. Most of us in this room don't have the depth of maturity to wait ten months. Yeah. We order at one window. If it's not ready at the next, we're ready to get out. Now, as much as I say that, and that's critical of everybody in this room, including me, that's not where we're staying. We're developing a depth of maturity that comes from understanding the Word. To some extent, and I'm not blaming it on society, this is not a Freudian-based psychology session, 
But to some extent, it's because it's all around us. Nobody thinks we should wait for anything. You can cook an entire meal for your family in three minutes in the microwave. Sarai said, perhaps I can build a family through her. Abraham agreed to what Sarai said. So after Abraham had been living in Canaan ten years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian. Incidentally, Egypt is a part of Ham or Canaan. Okay, So from a national perspective, the shadow and type works here too, but that's really kind of irrelevant. Uh, Sarai took her Egyptian maidservant Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar and she conceived. Can you see Sarai justifying this in her mind? God told us we were going to have a son. I can't have a son. I can't do it. God must going to be used somebody else. Maybe he'll use her. After all, what a selfless thing this is. I'm inviting another woman into my husband's bed. I mean, surely this idea wouldn't come from the flesh. But the motive of her heart was revealed when she said, perhaps I can build. Don't think negatively of her. You've done it. You may not have a husband you put in another woman's bed, but you've done this thing. God's told you to do something and you've gotten ahead of him. You've tried to do things in your own way. Maybe God told you he was going to raise up support from you and you found yourself manipulating somebody for that support. (laughs) You know, I, I don't know what it is. Maybe God told you you were going to do something. You became impatient with it, and so you went off to do it somewhere else. I don't know. I just know what I've done in my life. I wanted a truck. I found a way to justify it. I thought that because I waited two weeks, God was speaking to me. Two whole weeks. Ten years she waited. And it was still wrong for her to take matters in her own hands. Now, don't place these people on some kind of level unobtainable to you. Yeah, but that was Abraham. He was the father of faith. We could never be like that. These were men and women just like you. You're every bit as accountable as they are. In fact, you're more empowered than they ever were because God's Holy Spirit lives in you, and He did not then. All right, so she conceives... When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. It's funny. We get so upset when the works of our hands don't produce the fruit that God desired. Then Sarai said to Abraham, You're responsible for the wrong I'm suffering. Start to blame everybody around you. Unable to take responsibility for yourself for having missed God, for having gotten out of the will of God and tried to, you're going to blame everybody else. I've seen this my entire Christian walk. I only know a couple people that have had the spiritual backbone to stand up and say, no, I know so-and-so sinned and they contributed to this, but this was my fault. I brought this on myself. Almost everybody I have ever known blames it on the church they came out of, the people who were over them, everything. It's always somebody else's fault. That's been going on since Adam and Eve. It was the woman you gave me. Yeah, well, it was the serpent, you know, transferal of the blame. When will we learn to be men and women of God and say, hey, I blew it, but God's working with me anyway? I put my servant in your arms, and now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Boy, how quickly, how quickly we turn on each other and say, yeah, well, God will judge between us. We try to take this sword that is the Word of God meant for the enemy and carve each other up with it. 
We'll turn on each other in a moment and say, yeah, well, this didn't work out and it's your fault. And the other says, no, it's your fault. Well, God will judge between us. You better hope He doesn't. He might strike you both dead. Friends, you be very careful when you invoke the name of the Lord about anybody. If I use the term Jesus Christ rebuke you, it came from deep within me. Because for you to stand and rebuke somebody in that name means you're asking God to judge between the two of you. And if you are wrong, that judgment will fall on you. Your servant is in your hands, Abram said. Do whatever you think's best. I love these laid-back dads, you know. Hey, I just did what you told me to do. Okay, dear. You want her back? Take her, you know. <laughs> Sometimes the shining man of faith is not so shining. The angel of... I'm sorry. Your servant is in your hands, Abram said. Do whatever you think best. Then Sarai mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. The one who's supposed to be the spirit in the relationship is mistreating the flesh. I'm running away from my mistress. I'm sorry, I can't read. Verse 7. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? That's interesting, isn't it? angel wants to know where she's come from, where she's going. I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, Go back to your mistress and submit to her. doesn't matter whether your flesh thinks that the spiritual decisions are right or wrong. The flesh's job is to submit to the Spirit as directed by God. I want to read a little bit about the fruit, then we're going to go to another scripture. The angel of the Lord also said to her, you are now with child and you have a son. Well, you want to jump back and say, Hallelujah! The promise is fulfilled. God said Abraham would have a son. Now he's got a son, right? So maybe what Sarai did with Hagar in the flesh is going to work out for good after all, huh? You are now with child and you will have a son. You shall name him Ishmael. Well, so far, so good. The Lord has heard your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man. Or one translation says he will be a wild jackass of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he will live in hostility toward all his brothers. When we step out and do something according to our own strength, a good idea but not a God idea, the fruit is usually something that works against the promises of God in your life. See, God's desire was to bring about Isaac. Now, this kid would hate Isaac from the beginning. There would be an envious relationship between them. Do you know that this one act, this one moment of conception has affected Middle East history forever? When you turn on the TV right now and they're building a wall... In Jerusalem, when there's suicide bombers and all this, do you know that that is the product of Ishmael? Is it Ishmael's fault? Not at all. God blessed him. But God knew ahead of time, no, this is not the work of my spirit. This is the work of a wife's desire 
And you know what? He'll live in hostility towards everybody. In your life, the works of your flesh will live in hostility towards the works of the Spirit. They'll be in contradiction with one another. When God's telling you to do something, you'll be wanting to lean. He's telling you to do something with your right hand and your left hand is leaning on its own strength. And you have to wrestle. How much better it is just to make your desires a slave to God's. You know what? You get to give up. Let me relate this to husbands and wives. When we were younger and married, my wife had a tendency, as all wives do, because I was not good at leading, to resent my leadership. You know? Well, he's supposed to make all the decisions and I'm just supposed to go along with the flow? Well, that's probably because I had my thumb on her too much. Instead of loving her into the place she should be, I was trying to force her. Young pastors do the same thing. I've made those mistakes with you all. But what I found out and what she found out is as time went on, she found great freedom in not having some of those responsibilities. She found it freeing to not have to do those things. You know what? If you make your flesh a slave to your spirit, you will find it freeing. You no longer have to decide how you're going to accomplish things. You no longer have to work it all out for yourself. It's the spirit's job and you just submit to it. And when somebody says, you said you were building a church, why aren't there more people in it? You can just smile and say, I'm doing what the Spirit told me to do and He hadn't given me the next step yet. You absolve yourself of all responsibility. Your one job is to hear from God about what you are to do and then do it. We think God only speaks to us about what we're not supposed to do. I need to wrap it up here pretty soon, so... I want you to also note something. How powerful the free will is. We say, well, if it happened, it must have been God's will that it happened. Are you kidding me? I mean, what a spoiled corruption of an attitude. Well, if it happened, it must have been God's will that it happened that way. You're right. This guy's going to live and be a donkey of a man in hostility towards everybody, but that was God's will that it happened that way? No, God has given us something powerful in a free will. Justin touched on it. Your free will is the only thing that is more powerful than God. He said, what do you mean it's more powerful than God? I, I shriveled when he said it the other day. It's more powerful only in the sense that God works through your free will. He does not overpower it. It's not that he can't. It's that he doesn't. And when you say, no, I'm going to do it this way, he lets you do it. And his work suffers because of it. Say, well, God will just raise up somebody else like it's that easy. Yeah, He does. He does raise up somebody else, but His work suffers because of it. It's important that Isaac be working in our lives, not Ishmael. In Genesis 21, verse 8, the child grew and was weaned. And on the day Isaac was weaned, Abraham held a great feast. But Sarah saw that the son whom Hagar, the Egyptian, had borne to Abraham was mocking. And she said to Abraham, Get rid of that slave woman and her son, for the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with my son Isaac. The matter greatly distressed Abraham. Or the matter distressed Abraham greatly because it concerned his son. 
When you allow Isaac and Ishmael to live together in your life, it will bring great distress upon your life. Once the son is born, once the work of your hands is already there, it is hard to put it away. It's much easier never to do it. Once you've already begun sin, once you've already begun the work that looks good, but is not God, it is so hard to get rid of it because you're invested in it. And when you're trying to put it away, it is following behind you like Paltiel crying, saying, but you promised. Now do you all see that situation I was telling you about with the unfinished job at all in a little different light? It was not God in the first place. That other job that the gentleman was doing was not God in the first place. And now that he does know what God's will is to go into a rehab, it's following behind him crying saying, come back, finish me first. Now, with that situation, it's easy to see. In your lives, because you are more mature socially, because your weaknesses are less obvious, it's harder to see, but it is still there. The number of times God told me to move from one job to another, and I drug my feet, and I looked around, and I tried to find a way to stay, and it made it hard to leave. I thought, well, I'll go fight for a raise. That'll accomplish the same thing. I got the raise, and then I was stuck having to leave a, God that, a job that God told me to leave even after they gave me a raise. See, Ishmael was birthed in my life at that point, and now it was in conflict with Isaac, and I had to put it out. I had to go tell those people, even though you gave me a raise, I'm still leaving. Boy, what did that make me look like? Uh, i got to flip back to Genesis 21. I got excited and closed my Bible. On the CD, it'll sound strange that I'm referring to something that's not on the CD, but whoever hears it just have to love me anyway. Um, the, this matter distressed Abraham greatly because it concerned his son. But God said to him, do not be distressed about the boy and your maidservant. Listen to whatever Sarah tells you, because it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. I will make the son of the maidservant into a nation also, because he is your offspring. Now listen, God said don't be distressed about it. You would think him heartless if he wasn't distressed about it, right? This is his flesh and blood. God doesn't care. It was only an act of mercy that God says, well, look, Abram. I'll go ahead and I'll make him into a nation too. He did that so it would be easier for Abraham to obey. But he's under no obligation to. God's not under an obligation to finish your works of the flesh so that you can get on with the work of the Spirit. But he did it in this case. Lord, I can't. I just built this house. You think God cares about your house? One of the hardest things for me to leave Baton Rouge, honestly... I know this sounds silly. We just bought a house. We just built a fence. We just planted trees when my children were born. And they were just starting to grow. You know? I still have a hard time. I won't drive down that street with my kids in the car if I can help it because they cry. You know? It doesn't matter. And it doesn't matter whether God told me to do that or not. The point is, there came a time He told me to go. <laughs> Early the next morning, Abraham took some food and a skin of water and gave them to Hagar. He sent, set them on her shoulders and then sent her off with the boy. She went on her way and wandered in the desert of Beersheba. The point is, it was hard, but he sent 
her off. You need to examine your lives. Whatever is of Ishmael in your life, send it away. It cannot inherit the promises of God. Two more scriptures. Actually, three. Turn to 1 Corinthians 3. This will help put this in a little more light. Are y'all understanding what I'm preaching this morning? You're going to be able to commit to live this? Don't you get the idea that I'm preaching from great big I and great little you? I'm teaching out of my own weakness. That's the most effective way I know to do it. This is 1 Corinthians 3, verse 5. What after all is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe. As the Lord has assigned to each his task. As the Lord has assigned to each his task. There are tasks assigned to you by God. There, this idea that it doesn't matter where you are or what you're doing, as long as you love the Lord, you're a blessed, not true. You have a task. I'll take issue with any man that says otherwise, and I'd be happy to hold a public debate about it. The Scripture is very, very clear. Each person has tasks. Now, how specific those tasks are, we could argue about that all day long. But the important point is here, he says, he assigned each his task. You find out what is Isaac in your life, you need to find the task the Lord's assigned you. That's Isaac. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The man who plants and the man who waters have one purpose, and each will be rewarded according to his own labor. For you are, I'm sorry, for we are God's fellow workers, and you are God's field, God's building. If people are a field, and the scripture says God has assigned you a certain field, and one time Paul said my field even extends to you, then it does matter where you are, who you're talking to, and what you're doing. It's planned. It's planned by God. There is a perfect will in, in that light. Don't, I mean... Just rid from your minds anything else. And I'm not drawing any conclusions from any of that. I just want you to understand that. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as an expert builder. And someone else is building on it. But each one should be careful how he builds. Y'all, you all have a foundation in your life laid by Jesus through the work of his people. I'm one of them. There have been others in your lives as well. Well, in some of your lives, not all of you. You need to be careful how you build. Because there are different kinds of building materials you can use. One represents Isaac. Those building materials that are things that God told you, that you waited for, you labored in, and you accomplished. And there are those that are Hagar and Ishmael. And let's see what happens. Each one should be careful how he builds. For no one can lay any foundation other than that one which is already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If any man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, that's Isaac, wood, hay, or straw, that's Ishmael, his work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what he has built survives... 
he will receive his reward. But if it is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. If you love the Lord, you're saved. But don't you want a reward when you stand in his presence? Only the Isaac principle will cause you to be rewarded. Ishmael, when it is all said and done, no matter how much good fruit it bore, and truthfully, how much bad fruit it bore, will just be burned up. One of those Jason Upton songs sings about meeting Jesus and the people you've praised all your life are people that heaven doesn't know their name. The things that you have esteemed are things that heaven did not esteem. You know, we need to be very careful to make sure our actions and our motivations are spiritually minded. That's our obligation, Paul said. Uh, I'm not going to read it, but in Psalms 38, verse 8, the Lord real clearly says it is His purpose that He's fulfilling in your life. The idea being His. You don't have to, like Sarai, strain and struggle and reach out and try to find a way to accomplish it. You have to be obedient and patient, persevering and enduring until God shows you how to accomplish it. If you could do it in your own strength, God wouldn't get any credit for it. He calls you to do impossible things, supernatural things, so that He does get credit for it. You need to understand that. And Chronicles 21, and I'm not going to read it, but write it down. Verses 1 through 6, David, mighty David, who had seen victory on every side. 1 Samuel 7, 8, and 9 chronicle him bringing the ark into Jerusalem and him setting Mephibosheth up at his table, him uh, laying down the enemies of Israel at his feet and, and every so often, so many lengths of accord, killing them. I mean, David who had seen victory over Goliath, who had seen victory in every military campaign he had ever been in, started getting nervous old in his life. And he took a census. And depending on where you read from, Chronicles says Satan incited him. Another place, Second Samuel 24, I think, says that the Lord incited him. Well, whether it was Satan who was at that time still part of God's regime or what, however you want to look at that, it was an Ishmael in his life. He began to look around him, be concerned, and take a census. The people around him warned him, oh, don't do this. Joab, who did good most of his life, you know, there's some things at the end of his life that are pretty debatable, but he said, David, don't, don't do such a thing. In fact, he even disobeyed David, and he didn't count them all. But he tried to talk him out of it, and he couldn't. Don't allow there to be an Ishmael principle working in your life, competing with Isaac for the inheritance. It will not happen. Ishmael will be burned up. And what's bad is, There'll be mocking from one brother to the other. There will be hostility between them. It will cause distress in your life as you do it. So, well, why do Christians who love Jesus sin? Because we get tricked into doing something that we think is good, but it's not God. Eve thought she was doing something good when she ate that. You know, she knew she was disobeying God, but in her mind, her flesh and that serpent had helped her work it out and said, no, no, this is not going to kill me. It's going to just make me more like God, and he's a pretty good guy. Seemed good, but it was wrong. We need to be wise about discerning between what is good and what is God, what is Isaac and what is Ishmael. We need to learn the difference between King David's voice and Paltiel's voice. 
God pretty much has the attitude you serve Him because He's the ultimate. The devil works on you day and night trying to rob you of sleep, peace, everything else to get you to do what He wants you to do. As we grow older in the Lord, not years-wise, but maturity-wise, as we present our members of our body to Him as a living sacrifice, we will be able to approve of what His will is. And you know what? If you didn't get this right yesterday, and I say this a lot, it's okay. Get it right tomorrow. I'm not asking you guys to do a thing differently about whatever happened yesterday. I'm asking you to get this right now for the future because it will greatly affect your lives. I know with confidence that God will fill this room and that at some point there will be 50 people in here. You know how I know that? Because He spoke it. Now, I am confident that the Ishmael principle will work in my life at times. I will have to be careful not to try to fill 50 chairs in here. I have to be obedient to what God told me to do and not try to work it out in my own strength. Sometimes that is so hard to discern the difference. After all, God told me to do it. Yeah, but you've got to do it in the way that God tells you to do it. He told me to send a newsletter, so I did. doesn't mean I get to send one every month. He told me to send that one, so I did. Do you, you understand what I'm getting at? Okay, we're going to close in prayer. The emphasis needs to be on cast out that bondwoman and her son. Get rid of Ishmael in your life. And if you look at your life with sober judgment, you'll see what I'm talking about. If you don't, it's just because you're not mature enough to look at your life. I know when I look in the mirror, I can see these things. So good news is, as we become aware of the devil's schemes, as Ephesians says, we can take our stand against them. You know, when you realize how this works, how he got you yesterday, it'll keep him from getting you there tomorrow. Decide firmly in your heart you're going to count yourselves dead to sin. That your soul and your flesh will be subjugated to the spirit in your life. And then when you receive thoughts, try to discern where they came from. Now, is that my mind, will, and emotions just trying to cause me to be uneasy because this is hard for the flesh? Or is it God who spoke to me by the Spirit? And He will help you make those distinctions. He's not unable to make Himself heard. I want you to note one last thing. and I've got to close because our CD is going to run out. God didn't, didn't test Abraham by having him go sacrifice Ishmael. Isaac is the one that has to almost die before he comes about. It's why it takes faith. The things that are supernatural that have been spoken of as a promise almost always reach a point where they look like there's no way this can happen. They have to get on the mountain with the knife above the head before God brings it about. While Ishmael's always right there growing up before you, easy to see. That's why it's so easy to choose Ishmael over Isaac. Okay, we're going to close there.